0: Our guest today has a fascinating story to tell, one of how she went from being an unknown graduate student at an Ontario university to the viral subject of international controversy, all for playing a five-minute clip from a mainstream Canadian news program during a class discussion. It's the story of academia gone wild, of one woman's refusal to be pushed around by it. It's the story of Lindsay Shepard, author of the new book, Diversity and Exclusion, Confronting the Campus Free Speech Crisis. Hey, Lindsay, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for stopping by. Congratulations on the book and, and looking forward to having this conversation with you about all of these issues. And I want to start, I want to go back to the beginning and talk about before this, this big event happened to you that really changed everything. Tell us, you were at Wilfrid Laurier University. You were a grad student. What were you studying?
1: Um, I was doing my MA in cultural analysis and social theory. What is that? <laughs> um, so yeah, when people ask what that is, I generally just say it's, it's like the worship of Michel Foucault. There's not much else to it. Um, I thought when I was enrolling in the program that this would be a very philosophical program. Um, you know, it would be a combination of sociology, um, philosophy, maybe some political science, but it ended up just being these these obscure Theories. Not that Michel Foucault is obscure, because he's the most cited scholar in the humanities, um, but just this—it was the study of postmodernism and just these these theories that seem to me very unsubstantive.
0: And what does this mean, the worship of Michel Foucault? I mean, just take us back to basics. What what are the issues that are being discussed? What are the sort of uh, foundational ideas and so forth?
1: Um. I mean, to be honest, there's not much to it. Uh, it's a very, it was a very easy grad program. Um, all you had to do in your papers was cite the right scholars. So, you know, Foucault, he's he's someone who says, who theorizes about power, um, and about this this thing called biopolitics. It's it, honestly, it's not worth getting into because it's just so unimportant.
0: So, what did you think it's, you were getting into when you enrolled in this master's? Then,
1: I, I mean, I thought it would be the study of societies and the world and um getting into the pressing issues of the day and just talking more philosophically about about society and life um but it ended up being these just the the celebration of theorists from the you know 60s 70s 80s uh as well as marx i shouldn't leave out marx So really, I I should say, just to summarize, the gist of my program was um, colonialism was bad, patriarchy is bad, and Marx is good, and Foucault is good. That's all you needed to excel in the program was that.
0: And Lindsay, when when you decided to enroll in the program, what was your initial thinking? Like, I, I guess you weren't prepared for what it became. Were you going into this because... Um, you wanted to enter academia and you know, as a professor, go on to your PhD. Did you think that this was a pathway for some sort of employment? I mean, what what was the plan?
1: Yeah, so I I'm a big fan of academia. I think it's a great institution, and I I just wanted to go to grad school because I loved learning and I loved reading and writing, and I didn't really go in. I didn't enter academia for careerist reasons. I I wasn't thinking, oh, an M.A. is going to really look good on my resume. I didn't care about that. I just I just wanted to learn more. Um, that that was my primary reason. I did think, you know, academia could be in the future for me. You know, pursuing a Ph.D. and then applying for for jobs uh, within the university. But uh, yeah. I, I, that wasn't my primary motivation, I would say. But I, I did think, you know, I think I'm the right kind of person to go into this field because I saw myself as someone who's just open to discussion, open to learning new things. Uh, I didn't have any kind of heavy ideological agenda. And so I saw myself as someone who, who would do well in academia. Of course, I learned that my, I was wrong on that front. But
0: Were you politically minded when you entered this program and, and in any degree on the spectrum?
1: Um, I defined myself as a leftist at the time. But looking back, I would say I was a default leftist. So, you know, that that was just the default of, you know, you could say people my age, um, you know, being right wing would be highly undesirable. So no one defined themselves as that uh, as young people.
0: And Lindsay, tell us, what was the Wilford Laurier campus experience like? What What, what was it like to be a student on campus there?
1: When I first got to the university, uh, I was really excited because I saw Wilfrid Laurier as you know maybe not the most highly ranked institution, but it seemed like an underdog of a place, and I thought I, it would you know be a good experience for me. Um, but when I first started doing the orientation sessions, you know my first day on campus, I quickly realized that my cohort in my master's program, cultural analysis and social theory, um they were very consumed by identity issues. And it was kind of very surprising to me. I had entered graduate school thinking this is kind of where the collective of the most open minds comes and they're they're willing to talk about anything. They're willing to dive a little deeper into the issues of the day. But what I met was just kind of people who were interested in, you know, representations of of queerness in the media uh representations of of homosexuality in the media uh representations of hijab in the media so that kind of stuff
0: sorry and you mean that was what people were talking about sort of socially hanging out at social events or that was sort of the thrust of grad seminar conversations where was this uh rising to the fore
1: that was their research interests so what they would ultimately End up writing their papers on also fat phobia was another one representations of, of fatness in the media that kind of stuff um as well as yes seminar topics and uh and everyday discussion so all of the above
0: now obviously people are going to take some very niche and specific interests in their doctoral dissertations and i, I think it should be expected that the, the topics you mentioned will crop up once in a while are, are you saying that these were uh occasional interests or this was sort of the the meat and potatoes of what was going on there in the curriculum
1: This was the meat and potatoes. So, I mean, I I was in a small program. I think there was only 13 or 14 students. And when I first got to, you know, the orientation session for my first day in that program, uh, yes, almost every single student introduced themselves as having those research interests. And that's where I kind of got the first signifier that, you know, this, this program wasn't going to be what I expected. The university experience, you know, the graduate school experience wasn't going to be what I expected.
0: And were you the only one who did not share that approach?
1: Um, Pretty much, yeah. I mean, if it wasn't an identity issue, it was a colonialism issue or uh, something about Marx. So, I mean, the topics were very predictable.
0: And looking back, do you think, I guess you were a little taken aback by all of that, but looking back now, do you think that you should have known what to expect? Or do you think that, one, a student would be within the right to show up with the perspective that you had and go, well, what's actually going on here?
1: Yeah, so when I looked back at at the program page for the program that I applied to, I did I did think to myself, you know, how could I miss this? You know, there, there are certain keywords, uh, you know, like social justice or, you know, there are certain words where you kind of know what the bent of the course is going to be or what the bent of the program is going to be uh, but at the time I just wasn't familiar with that language uh, I wasn't I just wasn't attuned to that so uh, I, I wouldn't have known
0: so looking back do you think that that you were wronged by this experience? I mean we're going to talk about some some real particulars uh, in a few minutes or do you think oh I just shouldn't have done that
1: Um, Well, I mean, I'm the first one to say that I don't think that academic program should exist. I mean, that is my master's degree. I have a master's degree in cultural analysis and social theory. I don't think it should exist. I don't think it contributes anything. I don't think it has any substance. But, you know, I think anyone who graduates from that kind of program, and there are other ones too, like, you know, social justice studies, um, the graduates will keep on, you know, maintaining the facade that they... They have this really important degree, and they're a very important person because they have a master's degree in this. Um, but you know, I'm I'm just honest about my experience that uh, this program shouldn't exist. And there there are many, like I said, similar programs. Anything with the name social with the word social justice in it. Um, some some people say that it's often things that end with studies that are the most um, you know intellectually lightweight, academically lightweight.
0: The least studious, the ones that are yeah. called studies are the ones where you're doing the least amount of studying. Uh, let's get to that uh, that fateful day here. Let, let, let's tee this up because there was a, a seminar session that changed everything for you. You played five minutes of clips from a TVO program, TV Ontario program called The Agenda with Steve Pakin. Now, for those across the country, they'll probably know Steve Pakin as someone who's typically, or who has often been the moderator of federal leadership debates. In Ontario, he hosts sort of one of the flagship discussion programs on on the Ontario Public Broadcaster, uh, TVO. I mean, Lindsay, would you agree that, you know, at the time of you playing this clip, TVO is pretty much the most sort of mainstream program uh, you can really get in terms of discussion in Ontario?
1: Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I first learned about the program because I had seen it played by other professors in in my previous courses um yeah
0: so you played five minutes in a seminar of a discussion of three different uh individuals guests who were who were all relatively unknown at that point although one of them is professor jordan peterson who is very known now of course why did you play that clip what was happening in the assignment that you were given for that day that led you to say this is something that is relevant to this discussion
1: so when you're a graduate student you generally also have a ta ship a teaching assistantship, and so i was the ta for communication studies 101 so a first year communication course uh, because that's what my undergrad degree was in and um the way the course was structured was every week there was a kind of topic related to writing skills and language skills so it could be um punctuation, it could be citation, uh, and there were two weeks on grammar. And so I thought, okay, grammar, I'll I'll go over the typical do's and don'ts. Uh, But I also want to show how grammar could be a really interesting issue that we encounter in everyday life. And to do this, I, I showed the clip that you mentioned from TVO. And it was a discussion on pronouns, and actually, in in the textbook for that course, pronouns was you know mentioned. You know, gender gendered pronouns was uh, a subheading in the textbook, and I thought this is so interesting because Dr. Jordan Peterson, uh, as well as Dr. Nicholas Matt, who's a professor of transgender studies at the U of T, they're they're talking about what is fundamentally a, a language issue and and grammar issue, but It's on a panel discussion show. And this is, you know, I think this will be really interesting and relevant for my students. And so I brought in uh, the clip.
0: Well, let me play that clip because we have that clip right here, uh, at least part of what you played. Here's Professor Jordan Peterson speaking on the agenda. What is it
2: you find offensive about this legislation? Well, fundamentally, there, there were two things that really bothered me, although there have been other things I've thought about since. One was that I was being... Asked as everyone is to use a certain set of words that I think are the constructions of people who have a political ideology that I don't believe in and that I also regard as as dangerous. What are those words? Those are the made-up words to re, that that people now describe as um, as gender-neutral, and so to me they're 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 an attempt to control language in, and in a direction that isn't happening organically. It's not happening naturally. People aren't picking up these words in the typical way that new words are picked up but by force and by fiat, and I would say by force because there's legislative power behind them. And I don't like these made-up words, z and zir, and that sort of thing. Okay, what about, they're not all made-up words, quote-unquote made-up words. For example, they is one of them, Yeah, but to speak to an individual as they. Right, but we can't dispense with the distinction between singular and plural. I mean, I know that the advocates of that particular approach say that they has been used forever as a singular, and that's actually not correct. It's used as a singular in very exceptional circumstances, like, if your child wishes to bring a book to school, they're welcome to do so, but that's just grammatically incorrect. Well, it is also there's some debate about that because it is they is used like that sometimes, but it's never been used as a singular replacement for he or she, and oh. so it's not it's not a tenable solution, and that's the best of the solution.
0: So, Lindsay, that's part of the clip that you played for the class. What was the reaction to hearing this clip?
1: My students were very willing to talk about this and everyone in the room had you know different things to add so um i, th- I think at the end of the day by the way no one was offended by this uh, well at least not uh, not that i could see no one cried or ran out of the room or got mad it-, it was just a very collegial discussion um we talked about how language evolves you know some students made the point that we don't speak we don't speak Shakespearean English anymore. So what's the big deal if we add "je" uh, and Zhe? Um Some other students were more on Dr. Peterson's side, so they, uh, you know, they were against compelled speech. Um, we we talked about "they" and "them" in the singular, and we talked about situations where maybe you already use that that term in the singular. Um, because maybe you don't know someone's gender and so you don't refer to them as a, a he or a her you say they uh, we talked about whether some other students whether any students in the class speak other languages um, and whether those languages have gendered pronouns or not and overall it, it went really well I taught three blocks of classes um, kind of going over the same the same things and I went home just like any other night uh, thinking that the class went well.
0: And Lindsay, just to be clear, I mean, in, in no other clip, uh, I know Jordan Peterson has a, has a reputation that precedes him that is not necessarily accurate about the things he said, but he really focuses his remarks and his position back then, uh, this clip that's now four years old, talking about how he doesn't want to say Zer and ze and he will not be compelled to do it by any rules or laws. But, but I believe he has been explicitly clear that, you know, if a person would like to be identified as he or she, uh, you know, regardless of maybe he thinks well, perhaps that person is biologically different gender or what have you, he believes it's important to respect those choices and it's no sweat off your back, so so do that. I mean, he has no problem uh, with any of that. He just doesn't like the zir and the ze, the, the neutral pronouns. Am I correct in, in representing that?
1: That's that's what was in the clip. Um, if you watch some other footage of Jordan Peterson, which I did later when I it became clear that I needed to know more about him, but he also does talk about how your identity is not You know individually constructed you know other people are going to perceive you a certain way and so um you know you can claim to say what you are you can claim something but that doesn't mean that other people perceive you that way he's also said that in in some of his youtube videos
0: okay but in the clips that you played in the classroom for class discussion there was nothing particularly you know incendiary uh in the rest of that interview that that didn't get out there so uh, so you went home and you felt like okay we'd done this seminar we'd had this interesting uh discussion some people for some people against and it was fairly polite and well-mannered and then you heard from your supervisor from nathan ramukana tell us what
2: happened
1: yeah so about a week after that class, I I get an email, and it's from the supervising professor, yes, Nathan Rambucana, and he says that uh, there have been some concerns about my class, and he would like to meet with me, as well as with my um, my MA coordinator, so the coordinator of my master's program, as well as the a diversity office bureaucrat, so the, the gendered and sexual violence officer uh, from the university.
0: Those are the formal titles of that person.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's actually longer than that. It, it was the gendered and sexual violence prevention coordinator, something like that. Um, but yeah, someone from the diversity office. Um, and so I got this email and the meeting was, was to be the next day. So it was less than 24 hours notice. And they didn't say in the email what the problem was. They, they just used the word concerns. There have been some concerns about the content of your class. And so I thought to myself, um, this is so fishy that they won't just tell me what the problem is or they they won't just try to talk to me uh, more informally. You know, they, they want to bring in all these people. This is just kind of suspicious. Like, what have I done? I mean, I knew it was, I, I gathered that it was related to the Jordan Peterson clip because that's the only thing it could have been from the previous week. Um, so I, I said to myself, I think I need a way to protect myself when I go into that meeting. I think the best way to do that is to record it and not tell them that I'm recording just in case anything goes really awry. And I consulted with my mom too, and, and she agreed that um, I should record it. And uh, so that the next day, that's uh, what I did, if we want to go into that part.
0: What happened at that meeting? What did they tell you?
1: So they told me that by playing that clip from you know, the agenda with Steve Paikin. I had targeted trans folks. I had created a toxic environment. I had violated the university's sexual violence policy uh, because I, I invalidated pronouns. I invalidated, you know, personal pronoun use. Um, I, they also accused me of, of making arguments that were counter to the Ontario Human Rights Code and counter to Bill C-16 itself. Um, you know, Bill C-16 was part of the clip I showed because Jordan Peterson was arguing against it. It's it's now law. It's now in the, um, you know, gender expression is, <laughs> I don't know, codified. Is that the word?
0: What did you say in response to all of that?
1: So I was really confused and baffled as to why this was happening, because my impression was still that the university is somewhere where we can talk about anything, where, you know, nothing is is off the table. And you know, ideally, we don't have ideological uh, goals to meet here because we're just trying to seek the truth. We're just trying to look at different perspectives and different research. And you know, I didn't. Thing is, when I went into that meeting, I didn't have any background in um, works related to freedom of expression or you know, academic freedom. I, you know, I had never read *On Liberty* by John Stuart Mill. I hadn't read. Kindly Inquisitors by by Jonathan Rauch. So I I didn't know the argument. So all I was doing was trying to express in that meeting that why are you guys telling me that being neutral could because this was the problem, was that I didn't disavow Jordan Peterson in the class. You know, presumably it would have been fine for me to show that clip if I had disavowed Jordan Peterson. But I didn't. I just didn't take any position because that's what i saw the role of an educator as is you just you you don't try to force any views upon the students um
0: and what happened in that meeting in terms of any threats that, that that were made to you veiled or otherwise about the repercussions that you would be facing for what you had done
1: they were very vague um so the basis of of me being pulled into this meeting was that there were anonymous complaints or one complaint about the class. And so I repeatedly asked during the meeting, can I please see the complaint? You know, is it written somewhere? Can I please see it? Um, they said no. I said, can you tell me at least how many people complained? They said no. And so this, this was another red flag, right? I mean, when, when you're telling me there's, there's an anonymous complaint against me, but you won't even let me see what was said uh, it's it's just I I just don't have any reason to believe that
0: were any of these people who were in this meeting in the class uh, observing what you were teaching no how did they get word about what happened then the cl- was the class recorded by anyone
1: no nope. um, it's it's still very unclear how how this these complaints uh, came to be and. I mean, I could jump ahead and say that the university eventually did apologize and and admit that there were no complaints. Um, And so it's it's still, there's been no transparency about how did this meeting even come to be then? The, The university said in their apology statement that the meeting should have never happened. So, you know, was, I mean, what could have happened is maybe some students were having a discussion about how they really enjoyed that class, and then someone from the diversity office overheard and brought it to Nathan Rambucana. Like I don't know, maybe someone was praising the class, uh, and then someone overheard. Like it's just, it's still a mystery. Four years later, you know.
0: And your meeting, it became quite emotional for you as uh, something that ended up being played out on the national stage. Uh, you you broke down in tears during that meeting at one point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think. I uh, Maybe a couple points during the meeting where, yeah, I cry because I'm just so confused as to why they're trying to tell me, you know, they're, they're basically telling me my, my understanding of academia is wrong and that as a TA and as a student, my job is to enforce a viewpoint. Uh, and that viewpoint is that, you know, Jordan Peterson is bad. He's a charlatan. And we, we always have, to, we never have to question pronouns. You know, we don't do that. That's what they were trying to tell me, and I was just quite baffled. Um,
0: How did the meeting resolve?
1: The meeting ended on the note of, we're going to bring this to the higher-ups, and from now on, we're going to sit in on some of your classes. You have to send all, all your materials to us first, and we have to verify it, uh, and you're not allowed to play any more videos in the class.
0: Now, they didn't Um, know that you were recording this meeting, of course. And soon after you shared this audio tape, other people heard it. This became a news story, a national news story, an international news story. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone had an opinion about it. How did it go from being a a small class, as you said, not a lot of people uh, in your master's program, a meeting with a few of you to suddenly catching like wildfire?
1: Once I... left the, the meeting that I was in, I, I thought to myself, this is no longer just about me and my class and these professors. I think this has now gone to the level of being a matter of public interest, and I think people need to know what is happening in universities. Uh, you know, parents of, of students who are in university need to know, taxpayers need to know, other students need to know. And so I I sought out reporters that that might be willing to cover this. Because like I said, I I thought it just needed to be public. And so, uh, you know, basically right after the meeting, I started looking up reporters. And I, I emailed almost, I think, every mainstream media outlet pretty much. And the first person to reply to me was Christy Blatchford from the National Post, the now late Christy Blatchford. Um, and and she called me the next morning. I told her, you know, I, I have this recording. She listened to it, and uh, she she released her story in November twenty seventeen, November tenth, I think it was.
0: Did you expect the story would go as as far and as wide as it did?
1: No. So after after Christy Blatchford's column, I I had this, you know, I thought to myself, okay, like I did my part. I. I contributed because I let people know something that is happening, I alerted them to a wider issue, and now my work here is done. And uh, at that point I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll leave Wilfrid Laurier University. I wasn't quite sure, but all I knew was that, okay, I have this, this one column out and I'm happy now. Right. And I, I think I've done my part to alert the public. Um, but then, you know, after that it was, uh, there were some more columns and articles Coming out, and it really did pick up. And when I corresponded with reporters, I would send them the recording um, because so that they could verify it. And at, the, at that point, you know, when the first article was out, I said to Christy Blatchford, you know, I'm not sure it was legal for me to do that secret to record that uh, meeting. And so, could you not mention that I did that? And and she obliged. But later, I, I found out that it was legal for me to have that recording because all you need is for one person in the room to know that a recording is happening so that one person was me and um global tv i did a tv interview with them and when i was watching the broadcast later that night i noticed that they included some of the an excerpt of of the audio and you know i i'm not sure i ever gave permission for that I honestly can't remember but it it turned out to be a good thing because that's when the story really took off is when people could hear it for themselves I think at first I was protective of the recording being public because um I cry in it and I I just found that maybe kind of embarrassing but (laughs) But I think uh, that was
0: a key part of what really made it resonate with people because there were uh there, there were people who were parents of university age students who thought, what is going on in these institutions? Uh, there were people who thought, yes, academia is, is is really messed up right now. There were other people who had major criticisms of you. There was a commentator on CBC who denounced you for your white girl tears. What did you make of this deluge of response?
1: Yeah, it was super interesting because I was someone who, you know, prior to all this, I had no social media. I was a very private person. Um, and then all of a sudden you know everyone kind of had an opinion and, and everyone was was talking about this so it was on um a cbc panel show the, the sunday one and there was a panelist john ibbotson who who called me a newsmaker of the year for 2017 it's just you know for a news segment it's not any kind of award right and um there was a writer named Vicky Mochama. I think at the time she might've been at the star. I can't remember. And she rolled her eyes and and kind of scoffed when he said this on air. And um, she said that I was only getting attention because of my white girl tears and that it's too bad that I was the one to bring this free speech issue to light because I lean hard right in some of my choices. And so, I I mean, I rewatched that clip four times to ensure I heard everything correctly, because first of all, she was dismissing me based on my race. And she was also dismissing me based on her perception of of where I lean politically, which I would say is is not really accurate. But, you know, what does it mean to say that what only leftists should be bringing up free speech issues if, if you If you're perceived to be right-wing then you know you should not be bringing up these issues what does that even mean and uh, but I mean some some other professors and and media commentators repeated that as well the the white woman tears thing
0: (laughs) and Lindsay what would you say the sort of the ratio of of support to opposition is that you receive from the general public and emails that you saw in news stories uh, that you saw in terms of people who were coming to your defense to those who uh, like the CBC commentator had a lot of criticisms to offer you
1: I think there was it was probably if I had to guess maybe 80 20 80 support and 20 criticism in that initial um, during the controversy I I, I felt very supported um, by by the general public by a lot of, of journalists
0: and what about um, by, the, by the institution I mean what happened Officially, with this experience, as the story was becoming an, a national and an international news story, what happened after you left that meeting with Rambukana and the others? What was sort of the next step?
1: Well, the thing is I went to I went public right away, so I don't really know how the university would reacted had I not gone public right away. Uh, I don't know if they would have tried to discipline me further, expel me, suspend me. Uh, You know, I think the response was, it was really just defined by it being a public matter. And I think the university quickly realized that they were, they really didn't look good. And they had to do something about that. And so they they kind of um, just left me alone, you know, bureaucracy wise did you go to class next
0: week the week after
1: yeah yeah i did
0: and how was that you were in the news they were talking about you on, on national television and there you were back to i guess both being the ta in the class you were teaching and also sitting in on the seminars you were participating in what was that like what was the response from others
1: so previously with with my graduate school colleagues i think we had a cordial relationship um you know when when everyone went out for coffee after class, I would join, uh, we'd we'd discuss the class, all that. So I I felt like I was part of the cohort. But immediately after um, the controversy became, you know, news and, and you couldn't avoid it anymore and you couldn't ignore it, that's when the alienation started. And that's when I just started being ignored. You know, I walk into the room, they all look down um, th- I mean, there were more serious things, too, that I, that I describe in the book that I can't really go into here, but um, it, it really was defined by alienation. And the thing is, though, it didn't really hurt me because I had that wide support, and it was just interesting how when I logged onto my computer, I had this barrage of support. I had all mm. these letters coming in that were congratulating me and thanking me um, people wanting to connect with me. And then I go to class and I'm just, you know, kind of alone and, and, um, it's, it was, yeah.
0: How far away from graduation were you when this seminar took place Uh, and when the meeting with Rambucano took place?
1: So it was November, 2017. Um, the academic year would end in April, 2018. And then In the summer i would be writing my paper which is just an independent thing you don't need to go to class uh and that means graduation in in october 2018 so i but in terms of class yeah five six months
0: did you finish going to class
1: yeah i did um so i had originally told christy blatchford and and she wrote in her column that i was about 70 percent sure i would be leaving the university and at the time i I was pretty set on that, and a lot of people were urging me to leave as well, but I I started to think about it, and, you know, the university would love it if I left. It would make things so easy for them. Uh, There wouldn't be any kind of direct pressure on them. No one would be seeing what's going on on the inside, and so I thought, I'll stay, and, you know, and then I actually just, I started a free speech club in, in January 2018, the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry. And because the, the university kept reiterating that, oh, they, they are big supporters of free speech, and of course they allow free speech. And so we created this club, myself and some, some friends that I met along the way. And we, we thought, okay, well, you, you claim to support free speech so much. Well, let's see. And, uh, I mean, that kind of stuff is... Is in my book it it turned out that they in fact do not support free expression and they tried to stifle it over and over again uh
0: well you wrote a column for mclean's magazine before class finished on march 22nd 2018 uh the headline was why i invited faith goldie to speak at wilfrid laurier university uh, Ms. Goldie was a very controversial figure. People have a lot of different opinions on her and Laurier Society for Open Inquiry invited a number of guests, uh, throughout that academic year to speak. And Faith was one of them. Uh, the talk ended up being shut down by, I guess, people pulling the fire alarm, and it was a very uh, controversial event and people were calling for the university to shut it down and so forth. What happened at that experience?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the club had, had held quite a few events before that, but we did want to hold a high profile event because, uh, you know, we just wanted our club to kind of get noticed. Um, you know, To be frank, we didn't have much of a cash flow. We kind of needed some money coming in. And so we thought, how can we attract these things? And we thought, and someone suggested Faith Goldie. And, you know, I was someone who was just unengaged in the culture wars for all these years, right? I, when I was an undergraduate student, I just kind of went to class, went to work and and for the most part, minded my own business. Like, I I mean, I read the news and all that, but not really related to free expression issues or culture war issues. And so when someone suggested her, I kind of looked her up. I thought, oh, yeah, controversial, but um, yeah, sure. And yeah, like you said, the event was shut down by fire alarm. the university said that very mysteriously there's there's no security camera footage in the area where the the fire alarm was pulled so we'll just never know what happened uh, of course no one will ever be be charged for pulling the fire alarm or anything like that uh, but you know there, there were actually some more egregious examples of the university censoring as well that was just the most high profile because there was such a large protest that, that's what really makes the news right is when there's when there's a huge protest against something right um, but yeah there there were some other examples as well for example we we invited Frances Widowson, who's a professor at mount royal university and she's you know one of the most outspoken you know leading voices against indigenization initiatives in universities because she sees them as stifling open inquiry um as being uh, not beneficial to Indigenous students, because if you keep pushing Indigenous students into Indigenous studies rather than just other programs, um, they're not benefiting as much from their education. So these are the kinds of arguments that she makes.
0: So you did the Society for Open Inquiry, you did the events with with a number of guests, including Faith Goldie, Frances Whittleson, and then you went and, and you completed your thesis, did you? And you handed it in um, you know, at the due time, and and did you get the degree in October? I did, yeah. <laughs> and was it Professor Rambukana who awarded you that degree? Who would have been your supervisor?
1: Um, so Professor Rambukana was uh, only my TA supervisor. So I just kind of had, I had a, a thesis advisor. Um, he described himself as someone who was ambiguous about the whole controversy. It, you know, it seemed like he didn't really have an, a strong opinion. Uh, so he was my main supervisor. And then my second reader for my my uh, major paper was David Haskell. And he was a, a supporter. He wrote a couple columns um, just talking about the Laurier controversy. So he became another voice in support of free expression at the university. So it was nice to have him as my second reader.
0: Have you ever spoken to Professor Ramakana since then? Since that meeting you had together that you recorded, no. What would you but, say to him if you spoke to him now, after all of this? Because there's so much, of course, had happened based on you and him in that meeting.
1: Yeah, I mean, so in some sense, I I understand that Rambukana and and Herbert Pimlott, who is the other professor in the meeting, um, it would be hard to you know, it would be hard in some way to have what you said suddenly in the media. And I understand that, and I'm I'm sympathetic to it, but the thing is, is they went silent for the rest since then. I mean, they never commented publicly. They never said anything. I mean, yeah, sure, there was the the statement, the official apology from Rambucana, but they they shut down all of their social media. Uh, They actually left the campus for an entire year they, they were still paid their six- figure salaries but they they were not on the campus they only returned once I had graduated and I just thought to myself you know if if I was ever secretly recorded and remarks I made were made public, I would just feel like I need to defend myself I don't I just can't really respect the decision to cower away and and not explain yourself um, especially when it's when it's a matter related to you know, universities and, and really the, the philosophy of education in Canada.
0: Lindsay, before we go, what are the main takeaways of your experience now, really four years later after that happened, 2017, that meeting with Professor Rambukana? What does this mean for today's students and have things gotten better or have they gotten worse?
1: They've gotten worse, uh, or at least it's been stagnant and there's been no change. Uh, there's still a problem with with censorship and self-censorship. There's a study by a University of London professor named Eric Kaufman that came out recently, and he found that a third of conservative PhD students in the U.S. have been disciplined. And so, I mean, this is, you know, I mean... Discipline for, for
0: speech-related issues and for running afoul of political correctness rules.
1: That's right. That's right. And so we and there are incidents popping up all the time. I mean, uh, Barbara Kay wrote in in the Post Millennial a few months ago about a student at the University of Manitoba who, on his personal Facebook, wrote um, pro Second Amendment, so pro gun rights and pro life posts. And apparently more than a, a dozen anonymous complaints came in over his personal Facebook posts. And he was actually kicked out of the university. And now the matter is before the courts. This was, I think, in the 2019-2020 academic year. So there's, these things are happening all the time. You know, the leftist professors still like to pretend that it's not happening. Uh, they'll, they'll keep going on and, and saying that uh, there's no problem. And uh, I also, you know, one of the conclusions I come to in my book and that I expand upon is that these diversity offices need to be shut down. You know, I had a diversity bureaucrat in the meeting with me. And, you know, I I had never thought much of diversity offices before that. Um, I was pretty neutral about them, but I I know now that they are offices of the enforcement of ideological conformity. You know, that you have to think that trans women are real women. You have to be pro-choice. You have to believe that Canada is a systemically racist country. If you don't believe those things, then um, they're going to either force you to believe them, or, or you're going to get kicked out, you're going to get in trouble. That, that is why those offices exist. And so I think maybe the first step to bringing back a, a flourishing culture of free expression on universities is to get rid of those offices. And I mean, you know, the ideology permeates in, in academic studies too, but hopefully shutting down the offices could be an important first step.
0: Lindsay, if you had to, would you go through this whole experience again? Would you do anything differently?
1: I would go through it again. Yeah, no, I. It was really important for me to to learn about these things because if I hadn't gone through this controversy, yeah, I might be someone who who does deny that there is a problem. Uh, I might be someone who thinks, oh, you had complaints made against you at the university. Wow, you must be a bad person. But now I know that basically anyone who's anyone has had a complaint made against them uh, it's not a signifier that you're a bad person. It just means maybe you're, you're a little more edgy. Um, so I think that I would have come to have the views that I currently have, but the Laurier controversy accelerated that learning process for me. And for that, I'm quite thankful in my book. I describe you know, graduation day and how my, my classmates, they kind of came out with the same degree that I have. And, uh, what did they learn? I don't know. I, I didn't feel like I learned much, so I, I, I think they feel the same way. They actually did indicate that they felt the same way um, at some points in the program. But at least I came out of it understanding a really important issue, and that is the issue of free expression. And now I feel like I have a, a very just strong background and a strong understanding of these issues.
0: It's quite a story, and it was one that was on the front pages dominating the debates. I, I remember uh, on my own radio program uh, talking about it with the panelists and so forth and going on other shows. I mean, it was quite something. Hard to believe it was four years ago. We've covered a lot of the terrain, but I know there's a lot more details of it, both about your particular experience and the broader concerns with campus free speech, all in your new book, Diversity and Exclusion, Confronting the Campus Free Speech Crisis, available online at Amazon. Lindsay Shepard, thanks so much for joining us today. Great conversation. Thanks. Thanks. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment with Anthony Fury on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for
2: listening.